So we are in Zechariah, and last week we finished chapter 12. So I want to back up. Let's go back to 12.10, because I think that gives us a run into 13. So 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that they will look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They will mourn him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And we talked about that being a prophecy of the Messiah, the firstborn of all creation and the one who was pierced. And verse 11, on that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon and the plan of Megiddo. And that was when Josiah was killed by the uh, Egyptians. We talked about all this last time. Verse 12, the land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. And again, we talked about that last time. This was in the context of the three worthless shepherds. The worthless shepherds are the priests, the prophets, and the kings as a group. Each one of those is a type, if you will. And when God was speaking against the shepherds of Israel, who didn't maintain his standards, because they didn't maintain his standards, nobody else did either. And so the country descended into idol worship and all sorts of stuff and wound up going into exile. So David would be representative of the king. Nathan would be representative of the prophets. And then Levi and the Shemites are both priestly class. So they're all leadership classes, if you will. And all of them have failed, if you will, in maintaining God's standards. And so the sheep wandered off into places they shouldn't go. Now, the next paragraph in 13 is a continuation of that. 13.1, on that day shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Back in verse 10, pouring out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace, pleas for mercy, Then we have the morning. Then we have a fountain opened up to cleanse. As I say, I didn't get to put the chapter divisions in the Bible. Some bishop did it. They're not obviously in the original text. They're added later on. And mostly the Jews and the Christians agree on them, but not always. So anyway, I think that's the end of the thought. So now down to 13.2. And on that day, and that day is regarded by most Christian Bible scholars as referring to the day of the Lord. And I think that's sound in this case as we get to the end of Zechariah. So verse 2. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. 
and his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. The idea here is we're talking about false prophets, obviously, and Israel has got a rich history of false prophets who lead people astray by giving erroneous prophecies. And virtually every ancient state had, as part of the staff, if you will, prophets. The idea was this is a world that mixes the spiritual and the physical. And in order to be current on what's going on and to know what's going on, you got to have people on your staff that handle the physical stuff, you know, diplomacy and all that kind of thing. But you also need to have people on your staff that are in contact with the spiritual world. It was regarded as every bit as important as any other, for lack of a better term, cabinet position. Nebuchadnezzar had them, Pharaoh had them, and obviously Israel had them as well. So we see various stories in the history of Israel where you get these false prophets giving prophecies to do this, that, and the other thing, and you have a prophet of God come along and contradict them, and typically the king really likes the false prophets a lot better because the false prophets tell him what he wants to hear. So what's happening here in Zechariah 13 is God is going to clean that out, and I don't know this, but I suspect that she sort of also had two kinds of false prophets. One is what we would call today a pundit, not connected with anybody, but just very clever and able to string words together and so forth, and others that were connected truly to demons and were getting supernatural messages, but they were supernatural messages that were not from God. So you had both, if you will. And one of the things in Deuteronomy is Moses talks about false prophets where he says, well, if a prophet or a seer comes up and tells you something and that thing that he tells you does not come to pass, you don't have to fear him. So the idea is when somebody purports to speak prophecy, people perk up and listen, as opposed to what happens today in the West where somebody speaking prophecy is regarded as a kook. They were not regarded as kooks in those days. They were regarded as somebody to be taken seriously. So if they were connected to the wrong source, they were obviously false prophets. I'm sure you had both false prophets who were connected spiritually and false prophets who were not, who were just what we'll call wise guys. Typically, the day of the Lord is regarded as the beginning of the tribulation. If you are a preterist, you think that happened in 70 AD. If you are not a preterist, and I'm not, you think that 70 AD was simply a dress rehearsal. History is prophecy with Israel. So the things that happened before happen again and again and again. You see it all over the Torah, you see it all over the prophets, and you see it in the New Testament. So the idea of the events of 70 AD being the last of the bunch, I think, is unsound. 
there will be another one, and that's described in Revelation. And again, if you're a preterist, you think Revelation is history as opposed to prophecy. And I am not a preterist, so I think it is both. It describes historical events that happened in 70 AD, but it also is future stuff because there's stuff in Revelation that has not yet happened. So anyway, the idea of the day of the Lord is when the tribulation period starts. And it's typically described as on that day. And that's why I said it's sort of a code phrase throughout the prophets that most Christian commentators take as being a reference to the day of the Lord, which is the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. What's happening in the day of the Lord is you have God actively involved in setting things up. That's different than consequences, which is to say God just sort of stands back and let things happen. In the invasion attempt after the sin of the spies, Moses specifically says, don't do that, God's not going with you. And so God doesn't go with them, and what naturally happens, happens. They get beat. Same thing happens at the Battle of Apex, where Hophni and Phinehas take the Ark of the Lord down with the idea that the Ark will go before the armies of Israel, guaranteeing them victory, and God doesn't show up. And then the natural things happen, they get clobbered. That's different than God engineering something, such as the Assyrian invasion, the Babylonian invasion, or the Roman invasion, or the end times, day of the Lord. There's several different perspectives on time. Some people think, if you're a Calvinist, that everything has been written in advance and you're now just living along through it. But God knows everything that's going to happen. You know, I'm not God, and I don't even play him on TV, but I would think that would be terribly boring. Where's the fun in that? So the way I think of time is time is this. This is all there is. You have the past, which you remember, but doesn't exist anymore. You have the future, which doesn't exist either, and the future is created one second per second as we march forward. So what God is saying in prophecy, if you're a preterist or a Calvinist, he's saying, all right, this stuff is going to happen. If you believe in time the way I do, what God is saying is, this is the way you have behaved. You're going to behave that way again, which is a safe bet. And when that happens, that you behave that way, I am going to make this happen. So the day of the Lord, if you will, is when God finally gets fed up and Yeshua gets sent back. You know, there's people that spend a whole lot of time adding numbers and figuring out dates, all that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, it's great indoor sport, no heavy lifting, anybody can play. But I think it's really kind of a waste of time. Because when the conditions are such that God decides this needs to happen, God will make it happen. That's my view on the future. You can have your view, and there are other respectable points of view, but that's how I think of it. comment Galene made is God has his two-minute warning, but when that two-minute starts is up to us because of how we behave, which is what I was trying to say. So now moving along, I'm going to go back to verse 2, and we're going to read 2 through 6. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, 
and they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. So the idea here is prophecy is going to become extremely unpopular. And if somebody is tempted to prophesy, he will not do it. Furthermore, he will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive. There was apparently sort of a prophet's uniform. It's sort of like televangelists. You got to have the Rolex and the white suit. So the idea here is they will not that on to deceive. What they're doing is they're dressing up in the part in order to give themselves gravitas, and that won't happen anymore. He will say, I'm no prophet, I'm a worker of the soil. In other words, I'm not a prophet, I'm a farmer, and I have been all my life. And then these wounds, some commentators, in fact, Chuck Missler, I heard years ago say this, that the wounds on his back were referring to Christ. I don't think that's right, but respectable people differ. I think that is somebody beating him up for prophesying and could have been mom and dad. Verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. I believe that this is referring to the crucifixion. The one who stands next to me, the one who stands next to God, is Yeshua. So, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, God's shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, his son, declares the Lord of hosts. And then strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And indeed, after the shepherd was struck, both the Jews and the Messianic Jews were scattered. The Messianic Jews, the apostles and so forth, were hanging out in Jerusalem until they finally got scattered to go out where they were supposed to go. And then the non-Messianic Jews were scattered when the Romans took out the temple and took out Jerusalem. Verse 8. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. I don't know what the ratio of killed to survivors was during the Roman siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but a lot of Hebrews died. So verse nine and a half. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Now, one of the things that I have said lots of times in the past is exile is therapeutic. Not pleasant, but therapeutic. When Israel goes astray, as they do about every 20 minutes, biblically, what God does is 
gets fed up to here and says, you guys can't govern yourselves anymore and sends somebody in to chasten them and send them into exile. The exile they get sent into is a function of the sin that they are committing. So when they fall into idolatry, they get sent to Idol Central, Babylon. And idolatry gets wrung out of them in Babylon. When they came back from Babylon, there was no temptation whatsoever to make little figurines and fall down before them. Similarly, when they got sent into exile in Egypt under the patriarchs, the problem there was they couldn't get along. You had ten brothers hated one brother, and they couldn't get along, so they got sent there and down in Egypt. They became one people, one nation. The problem with Rome that got them sent into exile is too many scorpions in one bottle. They could not get along. You had all sorts of sects of Judaism, and you read a lot about that in the gospel accounts, where you have Yeshua, who's as harmless as anybody could be, and they hate him so badly they want to kill him. And you have the Essenes, you have the Pharisees, you have the Boethians, all those, and they don't get along. So fine, you guys can't get along. We'll send you someplace where nobody will get along with you. And we get sent into pogroms and Holocaust and all that kind of stuff. And one hopes as they come back this last time, they will have that wrung out of them. So the place they get sent into exile is a function of why they get sent into exile. So all the way down out of chapter 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. This plunder divided in your midst, what that means is enemy armies will come in and take the city. They will take all your stuff and they'll divide it among themselves in front of you. I think this is future. Verse 3, then the Lord shall go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount will move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. I have no idea where that is. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. I believe that that is seventh trumpet time. So for those of you who are Revelation mavens, there are three sequences of seven in Revelation. You have seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls of wrath. Seven seals are authentication of the king. Seven trumpets announce the coming of the king. I believe he touches down on the seventh trumpet. And you're Biblical precedent for that is Joshua going into the land and marching around Jericho seven times. And on the seventh trumpet, the walls fall down and Joshua leads the nation Israel in and takes Jericho. So I think that this is a repeat of that. Same name, Yeshua, Joshua. Seventh trumpet, he touches down. And that's when we begin the millennial reign. 
And then what we have next is the king taking vengeance on his enemies. And that's the seven bowls. And we'll see in here in Zechariah, read verse 6. On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. Go to Revelation 16, verse 8. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Notice where it's poured out, on the throne of the beast. And his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So the idea is, on that day there shall be no light. That's one of the things that happens with the bowls of wrath in Revelation. I am not necessarily saying that those two are correlating events, but both of those things happen, and sequencing is sometimes hard in the prophets. Verse 8, On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And you remember we just went through the book of Ezekiel, and we have the same thing happening in Ezekiel. Verse 9, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord would be one in his name, one. I'm not sure what that means, but what I think it might mean is that's the day when the Jews will finally figure out that Yeshua is the Son of God and he is God. What we have right now in Christianity, Judaism, and so forth is Christians, most of them who are Trinitarians, believe that Yeshua and God are one being in three persons. That's what I think. Jews believe that God is one, and this guy Jesus had nothing to do with him other than the fact that he's a created being just like everybody else. And so one of the ways you can read that is his name will be one, is on that day everybody will acknowledge who he is. And one of the most iconic phrases in Judaism is Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, which is God is one. And they take that to be no son, nobody shares with him, it's him alone. So one of the ways you can read this in Zechariah is that little misunderstanding will be cleared up. I am of the opinion, this is my attempt at explaining Trinity, which nobody can do. Me either, but I'll try. One of the things that we find is in Scripture it says that Yeshua was there at the creation. And at the creation you have the three members of the Godhead. You have God, you have the Spirit, and you have the Word. So you have all three at the creation, and Yeshua is the Word. So the way I would describe it is he is the lips and tongue that God uses when he talks through the prophets. So if you have one being, just like you are a being in three parts, you have a body, you have a soul, and you have a spirit. 
You're made in the image of God, which I think means that you are made in the same pattern. You have a body, soul, and spirit. God has a body, soul, and spirit as well. So when it says everlasting father, you're talking about one being, and that's Yeshua in this case. Trinity is very hard to deal with, which is why a whole lot of people don't buy it. Verse 10. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananiel to the king's winepress. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. The idea there is Jerusalem, of course, is up on a hill. And the idea that everything else is going to be smooshed down so the hill is more prominent is sort of the way that seems to me. Verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. That sounds like perhaps chemical warfare kind of stuff. Verse 13. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. So what I'm taking that to mean is their trucks will all get flat tires. Bible speak for their trucks will get flat tires and their tanks will throw treads and nothing is going to work, is how I'm reading that if you move it forward to modern warfare. The other thing is the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. You remember that's it's happened several times, as a matter of fact, when God fights on behalf of Israel. For example, Gideon when he breaks the jars and yells, the turmoil breaks out in the camp and the Midianites wind up fighting with each other. It happens several times in history, so the idea that this happens here is, again, consistent with the pattern. Verse 16, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Stop there for a minute. A couple of things going on here. It's been a while since we've read it, but we read it pretty much every year. You have a list of the table of sacrifices at the Feast of Sukkot. And at the Feast of Sukkot, there are over a period of seven days, 70 bulls are sacrificed. And the Jews recognize that or believe that is one bull for each of the nations that is separated from Noah after the flood. So the Feast of Tabernacles has always been about the nations. So the idea then, when Christ himself is reigning on earth, is the nations shall come up and 
will worship in Jerusalem, otherwise we turn off your reign. But the idea there is booths has always been a feast about the nations. It's always been a feast of water pouring. Uh, verse 18. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be a plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor, Canaanite, in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. And the idea here is very much in consonance with the book of Ezekiel. The whole district is going to be holy. And all of the common stuff in that district is going to be holy as well. The idea, at least I think, is at that point Israel will be doing what they were designed to do, which is to be a priest to the nations. They were supposed to have been a nation of priests, and we had the unfortunate incident with the golden calf, and the Levites wound up being the only priests. The original take was Israel was supposed to be priests to the nations and spread the word of God throughout the world. When Messiah reigns, they will do that as they were designed to do. So everything in Jerusalem then becomes holy because you have a nation of priests living there. That's Johnnyology. You can do that as, as you please. That's not scripture. 